welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falkenstein from Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Hey, dudes. Freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru. Hello, hello. And 2SCR critic and everything film, Stephen Hill. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. So we're coming at you with our Sydney Film Festival wrap. It's been a strange couple of days not watching four average movies per day. We're down to like, what, one per day, like normal people. I don't know if that is even normal. And we're just recovering from a couple of weeks of oh. adrenaline-fueled movie watching. Yeah. Look, yeah. It's sad for it to end in some ways because your brain goes into a different mode of functioning and uh once i'm not being shoveled film after film after film it's like oh i, I need to keep up with you know normal levels of stimulation yeah <laughs> i mean I, I i took a week off work and now just getting back to like everyday life is horrible you know it just reminds you that life is misery we don't recommend this lifestyle uh, but, uh, you, 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 but you will enjoy it because mm. it was pretty fun like seeing god how many did we see um, it was it was over forty for me. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm at forty. Yeah, I'm at forty too. Yeah, but one thing we were missing this festival was that opening music. Yeah, which yeah. I kind of I forgot how happy it just made me feel just listening to that accordion, uh, which is titled quite you know one of the best titles I've ever seen. So it's, nose job. It's a great it's a great track. We did miss it. We're glad we can bring it to you tonight in Film Fight Club because we are doing a Sydney Film Fest- Festival wrap. We'll be talking about some of the themes and trends of this festival, some of our favorites, some of our takeaways, some stuff that will be coming into generally soon. And also soon, Portia or Lady on Fire, the last film some of us caught at the festival and one of my very, very favorites, we caught it the other night with, of all people, George Miller. George Miller was in the audience and sat next to us and we had a great chat and he loved it too. And that's what film festivals are all about. Yeah, we're kind of famous like that. You know, George Miller, we just hang with the dudes kind of thing. Yeah, okay. we do that. It's not but pretty first, major. But first, um, we are here to talk about the big news of the closing night. We're not just here to name drop celebrities. No, we're not just here to name drop celebrities. Um, every year... There's a frustration, whether it be an award or this or that, at most festivals where the best one doesn't always win. And um, this year, the Sydney Film Prize, as did the Palme d'Or, went to Parasite by Bong Joon-ho. And I was sort of this because it was my favorite film of the festival, maybe my favorite film of the year. And while there were many that were up there, certainly many that could merit a prize like this, I'm glad not one that just in my view merited, but certainly deserved it. One, um, he blew away the audience in successive screenings. He's going to blow away audiences when it comes out next week. And I'm so glad. I'm so glad I took the Sydney Film Prize. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's just the idea that it's coming out so soon, right after its Cannes premiere and you know, winning the Sydney Film Festival Prize, that itself is a big coup. So I think just for that, it's fascinating it's coming out in, what, June 27th? Yeah, next Thursday. Which is fascinating. I mean, you know, it's amazing. It's never happened, so... It's in keeping with treating it like a Korean film release where the releases tend to be more in line with the Korean uh, theatrical release as opposed to the way something like Burning was held last year where, you know, it was a year almost between when it played at Sydney Film Festival and when it was released in mainstream cinemas, which is also a year after it played in Korea. Um, yeah, I was surprised to see Parasite win, um, especially given that it's just won pretty much the biggest prize that a, a non-American film can potentially win on the international film circuit. But um, it's a crowd pleaser. You could easily make the argument that it's the strongest film in the competition. So I guess I'm not I'm not too surprised. Yeah, I, I agree with Chris. I was surprised, not because the quality of the film, it's a fantastic film, but because it already won probably the biggest prize outside of, you know, 
probably in all of film. So I think it was interesting to hear Bong Joon Ho. Yeah, well, it was interesting to hear Bong Joon Ho's thoughts when he actually won the prize and he realized the prize money. And he's like, "What are you going to do with it?" He said, "I'm going to buy a lot of DVDs." So it's interesting to see like that kind of. This prize going to a cinephile, cinephile who's someone who actually loves films that much. He gave a very sweet, modest speech, um, and which was mirrored some of his uh, brilliant and acerbic comments also at the talk earlier that day. We do encourage folks to seek it out. We will be reviewing it in more detail on release next Wednesday. However, Virat, just briefly, I think you caught it for the first time. I know we discussed it last Sunday. Uh, you, I know, I know you loved it. Um, we, we, and was there a particular takeaway from this that? Well, it's it's hard not to love this film. It's it's so funny. I think that's the one thing that strikes you by how incredibly funny it is. Because, and the genre mashing is fantastic. You know, it just seamlessly goes from a, a family drama to a thriller to a kind of tragic horror comedy. It's it's beautiful how it just balances all these expectations and still remains to be such an edge of the seat kind of, you know, crowd pleasing narrative. It's it's funny. It's it's pretty dark as well. So yeah, it's it's everything and yet beautiful and really funny. I loved it because I wanted to see a funny film at the festival. So that'll be out next week. We'll be reviewing it in much more detail as well as doing a spoilers discussion. This is a film if any that does merit a spoilers discussion separately. But next, we will be talking about the film we caught the other night, which we really encourage people to seek out, which is Portrait of a Lady on Fire. It is one of the late editions from Cannes. It is from director Celine Sharma. It is a French film, some of it's in Italian, and it is starring Leon Merlant and Adele Hanel. It is about a painter some hundreds of years ago on a remote stretch of land. It is about a painter who is commissioned a young woman to paint a portrait of another young woman who is very reticent to have her portrait painted, who is soon to be married off to some Viennese gentleman whom she has never met, as was very much tradition at that time at that place. And it is about the relationship between these two characters um, in the course of attempting to create this portrait and a number of others who live on this quite remote place. Um, this is one of my favorite films of the year. It's certainly one of my favorite films the festival. I'd say a second only to Parasite. Um, it is one that is strangely untempered. It has the similar approach to some of the more dramatic sequences it does to some of the more less fair or simple sequences. It has, which doesn't work to some extent in some of the more dramatic moments, but throughout is sublime. It has some of the best use of, use of music I've seen in the film in a long time. It uses music very sparingly. Um, some of it's a cappella, another is a piece a classical music piece by Vivaldi, which they use sparingly and to very profound effect. Uh, furthermore, the lighting in this film, Kubrick uh, made, it wasn't the first time it was done, but in Barry Lyndon, he made lighting by fire and candlelight, um, uh, something that was pursued. I think it was done better here. I don't think I've ever seen it it's a lot, done better here. Look, it's a lot easier to do today than it was in the days of Barry Lyndon, where Fair. we were working with quite slow film stock in comparison to any digital sensor. And in order to combat that, Kubrick famously used uh, glasses that had been designed for photographing the moon landings, so he used lenses, in order to pick up as much light as he could. These days, uh, it's much less challenging to shoot in very low, low light. You don't need some kind of amazing ninja uh, lens. You can just suck up as much light as possible. I think the film has a really nice look to it. It's this sort of desaturated, but um, the Kubrick comparison makes a lot of sense in how it's very tightly controlled. It's very much 
trying to, I think, mimic some of the compositional approaches you see in painting. Yes, um, to that point, I think Kubrick also could have done exceptional work, more especially back in the 70s, had he some of the technology available today, to the point of painting. I'm a huge Rembrandt fan. I see Cannes exhibitions and paintings wherever I can. And I don't think of it, and this film in style and the, uh, visually is... It evokes a lot of gothic fiction, but like Rembrandt, it's very much a precursor to gothic fiction. And the way and the, the images, it is as close as you'll see to some of um, the Rembrandt paintings. Uh, if you're lucky to have catch the exhibition at the Savoy Art Gallery last year, as you might ever see captured on film, it is sublime, it is lush, it is gorgeous. As is the depiction of the story, it is incredibly moving. And um, I felt... You, I think I, I could talk about the emotion and of these characters and how I felt it mirrored on myself as I watched this, but I think Osa Varad, it had quite an effect on you too. Yeah, look, I just wanted a film where I could cry a lot, and finally I got it at the Sydney Film Festival. I was sad that it was the last film I got to see. This film kind of ticked off all the boxes that seemed to be my weak points. It had artists, it had Greek tragedy, it had Vivaldi, it had, you know, a, you know, tragic, doomed romance. So, you know, you can't, you can't go wrong for all the films I've loved over the years. In the Mood for Love, Cold War, in last year's Sydney Film Festival. I think this was ticking all the boxes for me. But also, one point which Chris mentioned, which is interesting to bring up, about the control in how the images are actually framed. Which a lot of the films this year, in terms of compositional kind of narrative styles, have not worked. Because I felt... Uh, they were not trying to do tell a simple story through what kind of narrative devices and the images they were going to go. This movie is so uh, controlled in a sense because it's telling you the story and how things are unfolding precisely because of the control and how the images come together to tell you that visual narrative as much as you know what is going on between the characters. Because a lot of that is unspoken. A lot of the kind of moments that are shared between the protagonists are kind of unspoken moments and you have to kind of decipher a lot of the kind of unspoken dialogues through the images that come together. So it's very interesting that way and compositionally and how the film comes together and what effect it has to you emotionally. Um, I just found this film a little bit plain, to be honest. I found it to be a very conventional, familiar kind of story. And it's again, as many of the films of this festival have been told in a very restrained way. And I think at the end of this onslaught of 40 films, most of which were slow and or restrained, I think I was just kind of sick of this approach. I enjoyed this film. Uh, I'm not here to tell you that I think it's bad or anything like that. Um, But I almost didn't find that much life in it. Like it was so studied and precise in the way it had been put together. And uh, the moments that Shyama tries to break away from that in terms of the directorial style really stood out to me like uh in a negative way there's a fan a fantasy sequence midway through the film uh, that was the one one of the bits i did not enjoy um which talking about the the sort of the white is it talking about the sort of image of well, the white I'm not, that of... that's one of these scenes mm. but um I'm more referring to a a cappella musical moment which is so of um ah. it it's so contrasted with the general style of the film it's so contemporary in it the aesthetic that it's going for um and it's the only element in the film that ever breaks away from this believable um portrait of the times you know it's it's bringing in this kind of chanty thing that could basically be a movie trailer moment and and using that as a way of um 
I, I, I guess, depicting love that's transcending the ordinary bo- bounds through which this narrative is being, being presented. Um, and to me, it was just so um, calculated in how it tried to make the, the moment bigger and more special that it, it just really drew me out of the film. And it, it did the opposite of what I think Shikama was going for. I didn't find that. And it was simply the function of that acapella style and Vivaldi too being music of that evoked so strongly different era. If she had had recognized the contemporary music um, like Marie Antoinette or some other film had done or even more subtly so, I feel it would have been the case. But it felt like you were situated in that time there was nothing that, that kind of acapella though I don't know in this context it, like I said to me it evoked more adver- like contemporary advertising than it did a kind of period <laughs> thing it was like it was very much like Game of Thrones is coming to showtime <laughs> you know like <laughs> but, but then, then half the reason it was so impactful because there is such sparing music in this film there's another film I can't remember which one during the festival where there is barely any music and I'm sure there films, were many films <laughs> during this festival with barely any music but to the point that in the general trends I'm actually Sybil as an example and it and it emphasized um, the role that music can play practically but also emotionally in this movie. I think it's really well. Another thing I really liked about this, I'm going to quote, uh, I know Lisa Rose, the director of Queer Screen, was at the original screening of this, and I saw a tweet from her, and she made a comment that this is she really liked this film, and she said, this is a film by a woman who loves women, and I love how some of the more erotic sequences are portrayed in this film. They're sensual. They're not traditionally erotic. They're not leering in any way. And they don't uh, treat the crux of the sequence as nudity. The emphasis of the sequence is nudity. And I really liked how it handled several encounters throughout. I don't think the eroticism really took off except for at a a very few select moments. Um, I found it, again, like too tasteful and too restrained. And I don't mean that it needs to be like softcore porn, blue is the warmest color, or leering (laughs) at the audiences. I just kind of wish I felt a little bit more passion. I maybe didn't feel enough passion in the lead female performance. The Eloise who she's painting, I, I believed in a lot more. It's interesting because I think I defer from both of you there in the sense where I felt this movie was not even about passion or the actual consummation of passion. It was mostly about expressing inner desire and actually the romantic element of that and maybe the forbiddenness of it, and especially the Greek tragedy, which is referenced with Eurydice and Orpheus. It's a very interesting parallel there about uh, two people who are who want to be together but can't be together because of the circumstances they find themselves in. So most of the tension in the narrative is in the unspokenness of that uh, parallel where they find themselves in and they know that they can't have that. And yet, I don't think it's necessarily about the passion but two people finding who they are and then getting to express that momentarily before they know it's all going to be over. It's about, yeah, I, I mean, I think that idea of, of, of um, Orpheus is the important thing of the, the idea of the gaze, of um, the idea of the aestheticism, of the seat. That is one of the really important driving aspects of this film. It really, I mean, I think this is a film that's brimming with the, looking at ideas of representation. And that's part of what I think it's interesting is this is, this is, a, this is a, got a very interesting take on the idea of the painter and its social, social position, but it does it in a really inter- interesting way that, you know, a lot, of, a lot of period films have not been able to sort of capture this. And I thought this, I mean, the, the idea of actually being able to encapsulate and then this image of beauty, or this image of another person, even understanding a person, is a really fascinating thing that is explored throughout it, psychologically and also through the the, the sort of painterly and the, the the actual drama and the sort of contradiction that in if she cre- if the painter actually creates this this um 
perfect image of or perfect uh, facsimile of another person that it ends up actually being de- to the detriment of the person that she actually desires. Um, on this matter, I think it's really interesting the, 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 to compare this film with two of my other favorite films to festivals, one we've discussed and ones we've in fact compared already, Pain and Glory and Never Look Away. All three films deal with the idea of creating an image of something or of someone, usually painting, in the case of Pain and Glory cinema, as a representation, as a simulacrum, and to varying extents make the argument that while you can create something as real and vivid as real life, it is still but a facsimile in so many ways of what you remember, what you can recall. I really liked how Pain and Glory, the point in Pain and Glory made as regards the cinema specifically. It was very elegant. I, one of my, in Never Look Away indeed me so much. It was one of the first ones to at the festival for driving this home. And however, I feel Portrait went into this in a bit more detail, particularly with regards to the classical form of painting. And while and I loved it for this reason, I really I find it interesting that this is a recurring theme throughout some of the Providence, certainly some of the best films at the festival. Yeah, it's interesting how, you know, Pen Glory was my favourite before uh, Portrait took over. And Never Look Away is not even close to any of my favourites, but it's interesting that you brought that point forward and, and we can see how these kind of uh, themes intersect. Chris, you had something to say about it because you're looking at me as if you do have to say. Uh, and you no, disagree. I'm, I'm because you, ahead. No, because <laughs> you do disagree in Portrait, and so I would like to see yeah, that, what uh, is the thing that's holding you back because now we have a chance to fight finally. Well, I, I think I've laid it out fairly before. Um, look, Ian, who we had guesting on the show on one of our, our last episodes, uh, after the film, I said, what What did you think? And he said, look, Chris, I have no thoughts. And that's pretty much how I feel at the end of, uh, at the, end of the festival. So I don't think that I can give the <laughs> elaborate response that you might hope for. But um, I think just the general scope of this story of, you know, um, I have to paint you before you, uh, you know, I have to finish the portrait before you're sent away forever in a week and we'll never be able to get to see each other again and class is holding us back and there's desire and it's repressed and it comes out and it's also tasteful. It just, to me, something felt overly studied and familiar about this film. Um, and, and I did find it moving towards the end. Um, but not as much as I feel like I would if the emotion on the screen had become more than flat for me. Like for mo- I felt a lot of this on an abstract level. Um, or sorry, not a- even on an abstract level. I felt a lot of the emotions that are being signposted on a theoretical level as opposed to really believing in this, these characters and this relationship. Something that I did really like that I want to draw attention to is the maid character who I think is handled yes. in a, a really interesting and unusual way for this kind of for this kind of story, where she's really um, a lot of attention is given to her agency and um, mm. her own desires. She's and, just in the background. Yeah and, she, yeah, and she was in. Did anyone see Schools Out, the French film? Well, she was in that too. She yeah. was a main star. But it, it's interesting, actually, Chris. You bring up that point because uh, in a lot of other movies, and you know, Shyamalan um, deserves a lot of credit for this. That the maid character would not even get a mention. She would become, you know, a secondary character. For, for this narrative, she is, you know, one of the main three leads. I would say it is interesting that there's essentially there's no male characters in this film. It's completely yeah. in one one male character for a tiny like what, thirty seconds. Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> it's entirely focused on the lives of women. Yeah, um, that that's probably conceptually at least the most interesting thing about the film. And also, I guess with with the, with the maid character, you you then become it becomes almost a kind of a you know 
I guess, a brotherhood situation as well, which is not as overt as some of the other movies have tried to do. So in that sense, uh, I really liked how this movie was able to talk about the lived experiences of women without it making it seem like an overt statement about anything, which is often a lot of movies have fallen into that trap. So that is Portrait of a Lady on Fire. We do hope it will get a general cinematic release. The next thing we it will, it will. Madman has been liking my tweets on Portrait, so I'm. Madman have a release. Have a yeah. yeah, they have the rights to it, and I think it's oh, clearly okay. it's going to be one of the major foreign language films Definitely. of the year. So yeah, go see business it. is concerned. Fabulous yeah. film. Cry, cry. So what we want to talk about next is some of the general trends of this festival, some of the things, of the highlights, some of the things that have emerged. Uh, should we start with maybe uh, festival competition, or is there? Well, in regards to the festival competition, certainly we were very happy that the uh, Parasite won. Uh, certainly I would have been happy if Pain and Glory or a number of the others won. So Never Look Away was in it. I don't think it was the best film, but I would have been happy if it took it. Dirty God, um, not the best conceptually, but in terms of bang for your buck, hey, was, why it, not? It was a strange competition because we can all name maybe like three or four or five films we really liked. And I think the rest of them were terrible. Yeah, um, <laughs> Monos was shocking. Monos was bad. Uh, God exists. Name is Petrini. We've that talked, was, spoken about. Was really bad. And Judy and Punch, Judy and Punch my, for you, I know, was a terrible experience. It was the worst film of the festival I'm, for I'm, me. I'm thankful for both of you for seeing all the bad films, so I could deliberately avoid them in the competition. And I got to see almost the okay ones and, and really good ones. That Dead Don't Die wasn't in the competition. I thought it was for a second. Oh, it's God. always confusing when you see some of the great films that don't make it into the competition, like So Long My Son, which, which is uh, easily one of the best films at the festival. I'm pretty sure it's an Australian premiere. Is this a special presentation at the state? And I wonder, what is it that makes a f- film competition and what makes it special presentations? Is this, is this not cutting edge enough and if Judy and Punch is cutting edge and so long my son isn't then what does cutting edge mean? Given the similarities between Judy and Punch and the Nightingale it was shocking that the Nightingale was non-competition and Judy and Punch was. It wasn't was. an Australian premiere it probably just came down to but that. But does it have to be an Australian premiere to be in competition? I think it does. Well then you're restricting a lot of decent films as we have saw this year. Yeah, especially with Jennifer Kent, I would say, with the Papatook and how well that did. I, I would say putting the Nightingale in the competition would have definitely been the right play. But with So Long and My Son, I mean, the actors won uh, at Berlinale as, as the best actors, if I remember correctly, right, uh, for that. Oh, so, yeah, they won best actors. Synonyms actors. won the Golden Bear. That was in the competition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, too. Synonyms was one of the best. I think yeah. Synonyms yeah. is Which one of the films. Which talking about, yeah. Mm. Well, Synonyms had a... Uh, unusual vision if the festival if the competition is really about cutting edge synonyms is definitely mm-hmm. the one um synonyms was trying to do something different synonyms didn't just fall into the same uh, traps that a lot of the films in this competition did which is just art equals long and slow synonyms was trying to disrupt the form um bring in kind of jagged editing uh, some scenes were, were long and slow and some played um, with much different approaches to rhythm. Uh, it has a, a character who is mysterious, who you're always wondering um, wh- what's in their past and where they're coming from. In a lot of ways, it was actually a challenging film, but made in such a way that I found it to be funny and fun to watch. Um, so yeah, that really stood out. A lot of the rest of the films in the competition, I think, were extremely conventional. I'm I'm bringing out like something like God Exists. Her name is Petrunia, is unusual, but it's just didacticism in terms of how the the drama was sketched out. And Monos was just terrible. M- Monos was it was nothing cutting edge about it. It was like um, it was like early two thousands, like Amora's Peros, Misery Porn, <laughs> like that that kind of era of just. You know, shoving a, a filthy handheld camera through the the mud in someone's screaming face. 
from what you guys have been talking about in the, the bad films and competition, it feels like they're just proof concepts for shorts which have been elongated to make features well, and then they never had enough content to begin with to be called features. So they just ran out of ideas in the steam. Absolutely, I think that's true. I think um, people are going in and, and uh, thinking that if you film enough long, slow, and em- big, empty silences, that um, content appears you know, <laughs> and fills in fills in that oh. those b- beautiful horizons. Big issue in Monos. Um, certainly, my the, Sybil's biggest attractions where the, hey, the Turkish wilderness is beautiful, but there's nothing that fills it. There's nothing to reflect on. There's nothing to the, yeah make the space worthwhile. I, I was saying last last week on the podcast that. A lot of contemporary art cinema is following, in, for better or worse, in the footsteps of Tarkovsky. We've moved movies in the direction of long withheld shots over some kind of natural beauty and uh, slowing down, you know, focusing on the mundane moments in between the drama and slowing down the general pace of on-screen life. Um, but Tarkovsky gave you a lot to think about and was dealing with profound concepts. And now suddenly he was reacting against the norm. Now it makes sense for slow art cinema to be at a high at a point where TV is just insanely fast and hyper edited and, and stupid. But um, we, this style of filmmaking doesn't feel necessary or vital just for existing um, because suddenly it's become the norm. It's just a new, a different set of cliches that you enter into when you turn to the art house and away from the mainstream. I'm certainly Monos did this, the mounted this very badly. I'd say the Undog, of a lady- outside of the competition, which sold out multiple sessions, was just a lot of nothing, like a, a maybe at most 40-minute short film dragged out to nearly two hours. I'd say Portrait of a Lady on Fire uh, did this, but did it very well. Portrait of a Lady on Fire at least had some material going on and, and didn't overly it, 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 labor it, it, it the was, point. It was focused on character development, absolutely. The wind did this. However, it was meant to build a really strong atmosphere and ambience of terror and fear, which for the better part did work. Um, uh, Jesus, uh, it's not so much, but <laughs> the film uh, Jesus, it yeah. very much focused Jesus, on. Jesus, there are a lot of long, slow films. Long, very slow <laughs> yes. shots. Mm, that was um, painful, yeah. yeah. And in terms of other trends, yeah, um, we spent quite a bit of time at the hub this year. And it's oh, did changed. we? I, I, I think uh, it's too. Were... It's just Sydney right now, isn't it? Everything is about corporate sponsorship. Like there, there were so many private parties and so many logos yeah, assaulting you when you go into the hub. the hub. I'm glad that it's there because it's a nice, convenient place to to meet up with people, and it doesn't look as dead as it did last year. But um, man. You compare it to the Forum Lounge in Melbourne, and it's yeah. just space. And it's the, not just logos. And the reason is, in a in a industry of this size, and in a space that physically small as the hub, there's no point having a rope line. It's like I think I commented that during the festival to one person. It's like that scene in Extras where with David Bowie, where um, David Bowie and the other are sitting on one side, Ricky Gervais is just sitting on the other, but it's the same chair. It makes no sense <laughs> to be so to have an exclusive sort of setup in this sort of industry where everyone's trying to network and get in the door, and people are trying to get their shorts. I know, and especially with the hub, and the whole idea is that you get to meet filmmakers, and you know they get to talk to other people, and film enthusiasts come together. So it is actually a space where that there's kind of distinctions kind of blur away, and that's the whole point of having the hub to begin with, rather than creating artificial boundaries like a rope line, which is weird. We should also comment on the audience awards winners that were released today. A Martha, a picture story, won best documentary. Actually, a very very satisfying and warm film. And Sequin in the Blue Room won. None of us saw this one. None of us saw this yeah. one. I think the other, uh, and what was uh, Suburban Wildlife came third. Mm. I'm trying to think what the others were. Yeah, that, so that um, was Never released look, today. Never Look Away and Portrait of a Woman on Fire with fourth and fifth in the, in the audience award. Right. 
So very the audience strong. kind of knows what's uh, what's good, which is not the audience good. is very much for the micro budget afters student films. Clearly, number one, Secret in a Blue Room, and number three, Suburban Wildlife. God, I wish I'd, I, I wish yeah. I'd seen, I wish I'd seen them. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's been we had to go on to talk on the podcast in some more detail about some of the heavier trends and some of what we've seen at the festival this year. Uh, we've talked about some of the stylistic trends. Certainly, we hope that there are less just long shots for no reason. Um, Je- Jennifer Kent came in and showed us how it was done with the Nightingale, I feel. Um, beautiful shots of the Tasmanian wilderness there, which, like the wind, uh, created an ambience of terror, but also served a point as it settled on the environment. It, it's weird, because even the supposedly better edited films of where things are supposed to be happening, something like Rombo's The Whistlers, also suffered from this kind of slump where, you know, nothing happened for periods of time, and you kind of like, you know, this is supposed to be a uh, quite a fast-paced um, sort of dark thriller and uh, black comic thriller kind of thing and still you kind of struggle to actually get to a point and there were a lot of scenes where people were just driving in and out of things. So congratulations to the festival on having us and having uh, a record turnout and we do and I know that it's going to be touring around different parts of the state. Newcastle, my hometown's next um, and then there's going to be a few others in and around the place. So this has been Glenn Falkenstein, Chris Evans, Ratneru and Stephen Hill. Have a wonderful night. If you're listening to podcasts, stay tuned. Otherwise, stay tuned for The Sonic Assassin. Enjoy movies. Good night. back to Film Fight Club. That was a segment of the, the third movement of Vivaldi's Winter, which featured very prominently in... God damn it, Glenn. God damn it. The tears. Portrait of Lady on Fire. But not the, not the part that we just played. Actually, we can't restart it. I'm, I'm happy... I'm happy... To go with the flow. Have to go with the flow, yeah, because we are. Uh, that was not the uh, prominent segment yeah. of it. But as Chris we- says, you know, everything is not about controlled emotion. <laughs> we are just trying to hang loose, and everything is raw and free flowing. Everything is raw. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, but I have been listening to the last couple of on Spotify. So, I encourage you to do so get as <laughs> yeah, you generally listen to Vivaldi on Spotify. <laughs> can I? Can I Great. just say, uh, you know, since we we opened and closed the ep- previous preceding radio episode uh, with the Sydney Film Festival theme music. And what a strange difference it makes not hearing that as the entry into every film this festival. Yeah. It's just a charm to it. It's just, just the natural old school, old timey, lovely charm to it, which is which which is the type of vibe the festival has always had naturally. But which it should be it's going also, for. However, the piece is also <laughs> extremely annoying, especially when you're hearing it more than thirty times in eleven days. But the thing is, it's, so it, it it just became part of the charm, like with the descent into madness. Okay, here we go again. You know, I've just watched four movies. Let's see if I can even pay attention to the sights 
lights and sounds before me, starting <laughs> just in a minute. But until then, look, honestly, guys, guys, thing is, the theme music did what a theme music is supposed to do. It prepared you. It prepared your mind, body, and soul that an onslaught of cinema is coming, right? Yeah. And it just you're about to watch <laughs> some some horrific. Uh, but you also, know, scourge of the always soul okay. kind but, of moment. But it's like, it's, it's, it's like let's not go to the lobby song. But also, yeah. like, <laughs> it needs to be bad. But imagine if, like, the theme song was actually good and memorable. Imagine yeah. if you had Vivaldi. Yeah, yeah. Before every because you know, session. you don't that that would like you know completely overstage the actual music in the film. So, like, it has to be that bad so that you don't compare it with anything in the music. Like, it's so distinctive. Yeah, but, you know. And for good reasons, and it then could now be it's nothing else but you know Sydney Film Festival. Exactly. But now look at us. We're so ironic. We now miss it for genuine reasons. We do. I, look, I that that just speaks to the trend since the festival, anyway. Because you know we've just been being ironic and complaining about things the whole time, or at least I have. And now that the festival's over, I just, it's just oh sadness. I know. Yeah. It's, 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 <laughs> what do we do without you know running between the state, George, and New Tender, New Yeah, there's something and beautiful I go, like, about every day. when you commit to it. Every night is just a, a and all day on weekends is just a leap between theaters. And you yeah. know what? It's it's like just, there's nothing else I have to worry about in my life. Just getting to the next film and is it good and there's a, and there's a crowd <laughs> yeah. there that you only see every year and I love that when I'm at yeah. festival time people ask me my um, old roommate came up popped to the house today and said Glenn how's the festival going he's like Riley that's it. it's over yeah. it's over but also like it, you're right you get to see the same people and almost feel like you know time hasn't moved on you know, you kind of feel like, oh my god, you know that person. I've yeah. not seen you for it's, a year. To see you next you know? year, see you at the festival, yeah. <laughs> it's, but no, it's, but like, it's also like, really sad because it just tells you that we're not really friends apart from just seeing each other at the festival. No, no, I do make a point of catching up with friends, catch up sometimes throughout the year. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, I think so, but not really. So we want to talk about later in the program a few films we haven't discussed yet: Midnight Family, um, uh, so Maradona, Muriel um, Mal, and. Uh, the Amazing Jonathan documentary was the other one. Yeah. But before we do that, I actually want to talk about a serious subject and a trend we have seen at the festival this year. Before we do, we're going to give a content warning. We're going to be talking about matters relating to violence, violence against women, and as well as sexual violence. Now, what we have noticed is that a very prominent trend, certainly in almost half the films I've seen, is that they have had these elements in them. We have discussed that uh, in the past, in relation to a few films prominently, Judine Punch and Nightingale, The Whistlers, um, certainly it has been a prominent media story, the, the reaction to The Nightingale throughout this festival. What we have found is that while some films have addressed the issue very well in a very considered manner, others have not. Now, certainly there are many reasons why this may be a trend at this year's festival. It may be very much a response to um, the, the political climate discussions that are having regarding um, the Me Too movement and else. These are discussions that are very important to have, and it is equally important that films and cinema and media more generally, um, if they're going to reflect this and assess and discuss these matters, do so in a mature way. Some films did, and unfortunately some films didn't yeah it did become um wearying I, I wondered how much of it was because of um the curatorial decision by the festival and how much of this was due to the zeitgeist and um you know that affecting not just people at the selection phase but at the phases of production where 
people are receive grants or not, that stories that deal with matters of violence against women, given the position we are where feminism is extremely visible in the culture, are more likely to get funding. Um, to go a little bit broader, I would say that a trend we saw in a lot of the films was not just depiction of sexual assault or violence against women, but about holding authority to count over violence that they've committed. Um, the Nightingale, certainly, that was very much the thrust of the story there. Um, I'm not sure if you would say the same for Judy and Punch. Um, no, I would not. Um, I do appreciate... I have very mixed views on High Life. Um, certainly, I think that I've commented before that High Life has, um, as if not more graphic violence in it than in A Nightingale. Certainly, it's got le- well, less media attention. Still, there were more walkouts out of that one. Um, I take the view, uh, High Life. It was, and actually, I'll, I'll note this too, and to, to talk about the point more broadly, um, most of the violence that we have seen depicted in these films. Um, as is very tragically the case in real life, is uh, men inflicting violence upon, upon, upon women. However, there are a number of films, including um, Sybil and High Life and a few more, where it also uh, depicted violence by women against women as well. There are a few films that cover this as well, which is also a very, very important subject. Um, to the point Chris made about... Sorry, Oh, sorry, to a point because made about Judy and Punch, we have discussed this in a previous episode. Um, I took the view that um, there are quite a lot of disquieting similarities between Nightingale and Judy and Punch. Um, there are elements of Judy and Punch, certainly dynamics between um, one of the title characters, Punch, and another secondary female character, which um, had absolutely no bearing in the outcome events of the plot. And as I said before, if you're going to... I'll never begrudge a filmmaker for wanting to tell a particular story or depict what they choose to depict... And certainly um, elements that are depicted in Nightingale, Judy and Punch, many more, are true to life contemporaneously. And certainly when the films were set, both were set some hundreds of years ago. But if you're going to show this sort of action and violence, you have to follow through on the consequences of it, whether it be a semblance of justice or whether it be tragic. And if you don't, and, and certainly to a greater extent, Judy and Punch seem to celebrate cyclical violence more than anything else, then it, it begs the argument that a film was interested in the picture of violence and the consequences of it. And that is something that has been very heavily criticised in popular culture and in the mainstream press, mm. and for good reason. And it's worrying that it has been recurring in a number of films throughout the Cecil. I referred earlier to The Whistler as well, well where there is a completely extraneous scene regarding violence, which is absolutely a consequence and shouldn't, it didn't need to be included in the film at all. Well, it's always easy to give people what they want if what they want is, you know, cyclical violence. You know, the, you get to feel bad that something bad happens to the good guys and you get to see those bad acts avenged and uh it's perhaps is strange seeing the contrast i didn't get to see judy and punch but you described it to me pretty extensively and the contrast between that and the nightingale when they're both taking on some degree of being serious (coughs) in that they depict um, violence against women and treat that in a graphic and serious way, but then go in completely other directions in terms of the way that the uh, path to violence is handled. Um, but yeah, Glenn, you spoke extensively to us about how strange it is for both that and Judy and Punch to have been given funding at the same time from some of the same Australian financing bodies. Yes, um, to Chris's point, both films, uh, the 
Nightingale was funded by SA Film Corp. The Judy and Punch was funded by Film Victoria and post-produced in, in New South Wales. They're and both uh, Screen Australia productions, though. Both, that's correct. Both Screen Australia, yes. And they are, they're both starring Damon Harriman. They're both films that very prominently depict stated vengeance stories driven by female characters and include graphic crimes in against children as well setting. in a period setting mm. um, it's strange that these were both greenlit at the same time um, I find if in the, in the very odd circumstance that people weren't aware these both are being mad I surely think it would be unlikely given Damon Harriman was involved in both <laughs> it is strange that someone would have called, called you know hey this is a little odd Call this to attention. Yeah, it's and when one handles when one is from a filmmaker who has demonstrated their ability to handle difficult and confronting subjects, and the other is from a filmmaker who has not as yet and certainly did not execute such in this case. All right, uh, let's step away from this because I feel like we're too close to it uh, for a second. Uh, there have always been themes at the festival historically, and they just crop up from time to time. So, for example, last year, we specifically discussed self-harm was a big theme in a lot of the films we saw. and As it was at this festival. Um, at this festival extent, as well, yeah. yes. But, uh, you know, maybe that is a sign of the despair that the arts community feels, mm-hmm. uh, you know, world over. And maybe that is also a sign of curatorial decision that... The future. Yeah, in terms of, you know, the, the world is definitely coming to an end, that kind of doom scenario that a lot of, uh, artistically, definitely, with lack of funding and funding cuts and the lack of support for a lot of creative freedom is kind of worrying in that sense. But also, at the same time, I think a few points that both Glenn and you, Chris, raised about, firstly, around uh, filmmakers treating sensitive subjects as a shock value. Actually, before, yeah. we, before we continue, I just want to say, I apologize, we did talk about that we will be discussing the theme of violence, sexual violence, violence, and we did not um, mention that we'll be discussing the theme of self-harm. We will be discussing this in a little bit of detail, and we'll be giving the, lifeline, the number for Lifeline and some other services later in the program. Please continue, Varad. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that, Graham. So as I was saying, uh, you know, uh, a lot of these filmmakers, and as you've pointed out, have been treating these very serious issues for shock value. And I feel a lot of that is, and Screen Australia giving them funding, seems to be that, you know, we have something that creates tension. I know I was speaking to a lot of the people who were there at the actor short film screenings, and even the short films seem to have this narrative of using violence as shock value for, for no other reason than to fulfill a plot device almost. So which is worrying in the sense where you're not dealing with the consequences and resolutions in the narrative as to what the violence means for the characters, but just because the violence is there. And we've seen wildly different uh, takings on you know people and directors who are much more capable of dealing with these sensitive topics and the directors who are not, much like Judy and Punch, uh, which seem to be taking a very blasé-faire approach to very serious issues. I'm not sure... I think a lot of it is curatorial as well because I feel, uh, you know, it's not about just the kind of films being made but what the kind of films being picked. And it just feels like in the festival circuit the same kind of films get picked over and over again. You see, you do see, you know, the MIF lineup and almost everything that was at SFF is now again playing at MIF. So you do kind of see, you know, a similar kind of curatorial choice across the board which just flatten out creative decision-making as well, I feel. But it's not just the same films as the same sorts of films. Exactly. You're going, Sorry, you're, you know, right. you're going to see at MIF some interesting films that didn't make the selection here, but a lot of similar to 
what we got at SFF. And it does grind you down watching so many of these sorts of films in a row, you know? Um, not everyone does the kind of brutal uh, marathon slash assault Sydney Film Festival that we like to do where we, we watch 50 films or something stupid like that. We certainly didn't purposely seek out, at least I didn't certainly seek out no. these sorts of movies. But yeah, we're, we're trying to look at uh, what we've been recommended and what seems to be like the, the cream of the program. And it really does paint a, a bleak picture. Um, what I found depressing is not wanting to, with the exception of maybe some of the, the worst films in this regard, things like Slam or, or Monos. Our favorite film of the year, clearly. <laughs> yeah. We come back to that one it's, again. It's, honestly, it's like it's reaching that Tower of Bright Day kind of level for me. <laughs> oh, wow. It's not that bad. <laughs> it's not that bad. It's surprising because like a lot of people I know have loved the film so it's interesting that you're just on the completely opposite spectrum Chris I'm just right. I'm just amazed I've, I'm used to being the contrarian but it's okay um, cheers to that we wouldn't have you otherwise on the show yeah, I mean we would <laughs> I love you it's fine okay continue thank you, thank you. <laughs> um, but there were so many films presenting a nihilistic kind of viewpoint they're here to tell you that things are bad and they don't really open the door up to any kind of lightness along the way and over t- um, when you're seeing this kind of perspective come forward so many times it becomes wearying and it's felt like what's on the other hand from that is a lot of just like shallow uplift um, I, but <laughs> something that managed to maintain a optimistic viewpoint I'm not saying that everything needs to be optimistic I understand that this is an arts festival that's designed to present an alternative and in the mainstream generally things have to be shallow and happy um, I get why we get our own sort of, of dire slash dour art films once a year, but it made I just kept thinking there have to be other ways. Films like um, Pain and Glory or any of the Agnes Varda films uh, were incredible because an artist like Varda uh, is incredibly realistic, but also optimistic. Same as El Motivar. They're showing you that the world is a, and or can be a beautiful and positive uh, place in spite of all of the hardship they don't need to um look away from some of the darker aspects of life in order to present a view of the world with wonder um, it was one of the reasons i found pain and glory so rewarding um we t- one of the films i referred to earlier which does depict the matter of violence very strongly is sybil i do feel the ending was rushed though i do feel it's still and try to be a little too optimistic than necessary or than necessary fit in the story. the same about uh, Dirty God. Which was about to, about to get to because right. Dirty God um, goes to your point perfectly. It's a film that is very bleak in its outlook, at least at the outset, but then I think uh, very departs from its tone and tries to, to shoe in a happy ending, and which doesn't work. It doesn't feel... I mean, I, it's it feels nice enough, but the the more you think about it, it just doesn't follow from... What we've <laughs> been sold beforehand. Um, we've talked about a couple of movies where, having said that about Dirty God, we've talked about a couple of films which don't depict the issues we've discussed very well. I feel Dirty God does. I asked Sasha Pollock and Vicky Knight about this main TV, which is on the 2SCR page and on Falcon Screen. And I said to it's very interesting how the perpetrator, the abuser, is depicted in this film. You see them for a very short time and you see them in a sides in some flashback and fant- fantastical type sequences. And I asked about this depiction, and 
um, such a public response was that the decision was we didn't want to focus on the abuser. This is done too often in movies. We want to focus on the victim and her story and what and that it, her life is not all about his crime. I felt this was it's a very good film. I thought it was very mature and dedicated in a considered way to handling the sort of issue. Um, certainly, you don't as this film demonstrated. Um, there is no flashback sequence to the horrific event. You don't need while there is violence against the the Vicky Knight's character in this film, you don't need to depict graphic violent accessorily to just maturely discuss matters of violence. You can if you choose to. This film chose not to it's not and the it only approach. very well. Yeah. Um you can make something much more interesting uh even painful in depicting the scars these kinds of incidents leave. I mean, um it's not a direct comparison, but uh, saying that now, I'm thinking of So Long My Son, which is a film about um, essentially multiple tr- moments of trauma in a couple's life. Um, it's relating to the death of their child and also um, their inability to conceive again because of sterilization following the one-child policy. And um, that film almost... Uh, kept the traumatic moments in the in the background, and instead tried to um, instead focus on a large scale um, time lapse almost of this couple's life, so that you could see the impact that these events had had. And you realize that um, drama isn't necessarily in the most heavy hitting, the most shocking, the most splashy um, way of depicting difficult material, because that can easily tip into the realm of exploitation or gratuity or gratuity exactly it's an interesting point you raise about drama being you know in the more kind of nuanced and solid moments and especially about keeping trauma in the background because i feel dorian b did that really well you know and even when tomatoes met wagner did that really well these two movies which are in some sense completely nihilistic because they don't really give you much hope you know the char- but in the same sense while you're on this journey with these characters it is depicted, and the tone is very hopeful, you know, and it's not something that you otherwise kind of feel because the overall premise feels kind of yeah, you know, w- deflating, but the way it's told feels uplifting. I wanted to see more celebrations of humanity and people's potential, you know, the mm. people's potential to see the world in a positive way. But it's, You can do that this in a very shallow way, but it doesn't have to be a, a shallow um, thing to do. I think cinema has always been about... Uh, a large focus of what people have have accomplished with cinema has been about showing us different ways to look at things. I think maybe um, maybe there was a lack of films. I, I guess Never Look Away would be a film that is doing what I'm talking yeah. about, but that are trying to show you like ways of looking at things from a mind-expanding perspective that bring happiness and bring meaning and purpose that might not otherwise be in, in the life. And Pain and Glory. Pain and Glory is doing that and as well. And Portrait. And Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Yeah. Herzog, uh, Herzog uh, Meeting so, Gorbachev? Meeting Gorbachev. I, I, heard, I missed it. How was yeah, it? Yeah, actually, yeah, now that you're talking about it, it's coming back to me because I saw it so early on that, you know, he's such a fanboy. You know, he, <laughs> you know it, it, it's, it's literally him meeting an idol. Right. Whereas, you know, you kind of know that Gorbachev is, you know, his view of the world and his view of, you know, the Soviet Union is not... And what he's meant for a lot of people is not very positive. Mm. So once again, a very nihilistic kind of premise, 
but in the way Herzog is treating his subject in a very positive celebration of the human experience and him kind of meeting, you know, fanboying for, for his idol almost. So right. it's interesting how, you know, that kind of depiction of his subject. And I think Herzog is now coming back with another documentary, which is... Uh, He's always that. coming so, back with another but, documentary. But it's interesting because I've seen his Khan interviews and you can still see the spirit of, you know just celebration of human life and what the arts and the artistic freedom of expression can mean for a person. It's funny you mentioning this because his new film that showed at Cannes sounds like it's very much in keeping with this kind of wondrous view of the world where he read an article about services in Japan for people to play your relatives uh, um, at events like weddings and then went over on a whim and met non-professional people involved in one of non-professional actors, professionals in one of these companies and basically improvised a film around them. Fake documentary, fake. Yeah. Um, that, that by the sounds of the themes of it very much is kind of about what is real, mm-hmm. different ways of living your life, different ways of looking at the world. And, and some, yeah, somebody has to be out there um, exploring these kinds of things because it's when you've, like I've said, these trends are more apparent to people like us than they would be to most people going to the festival because we've just watched a ridiculous number of films. But then when you think about the a- actions we've just undertaken, sitting down in front of 50 movies, <laughs> somewhere between 30 and 50, it's like, what, it, what are we doing this for if it's just to be told that the world is bad, we're on a bad way, and uh, things aren't going to look up anytime soon. And it's that things can get better. Um, a lot of this films we need that we discussed are, that are very confronting still have an optimistic outlook. Mm. The Nightingale, at least the arc That's one right, character undergoes, hope. is incredibly moving. Um, Sybil, which discussed earlier, um, Dirty Guard, even mm. if it's a little hackneyed towards the end, um, says there is hope and mm. certainly um, and the... Even, even if things are completely bleak right now, I'm not telling people to shy away from the truth. I just think that we need to give voice to perspectives that are going to help people if we are in this such a bleak and tragic time right now. I think that's one of the social value, um, one of the, the main ways that art is socially valuable is that it can give that to people and it can show people hope and it can show people different perspectives. I wonder if the reason is also because of the mental state for a lot of people in the arts right now. Yeah, I think because, that's you know, definitely part you know, of it. It's, it's, it's underpaid. It's undervalued. I mean, not only from a commercial point of view, but people generally don't value the arts as being a vocational activity that you go out and see the movies, at the movies. So, you know, people yeah. don't see value in doing that. So I think it's also about self-worth and self-value. The people in the arts don't see that. So maybe some of that is kind of spilling onto the movies they're making. Yeah, I think there's a trend within the industry more generally that you can make two sorts of films. One is if you're going to have one that elucidates on the human condition has to be dramatic and confronting. Certainly, Almodovar went in a very different direction while trying to dis- uh, go in part dis- disambiguate the same issues. And the other, if you're going to make a fun movie that it can't, it has to be light and happy. Now, I, after this festival, I just went out and saw a couple of really happy films. I watched Always Be My Maybe because I just needed something to relax to. And I'm, these films are fine. It's a right to have these that are forgettable and enjoyable, but don't really tell us too much. But then there's no reason that we can't have a happy film 
that, like pain and glory, is oh so profound and deep, and we can pursue that. People want to be informed. They want to know. They want to learn. But they also want to be happy, and we're fine with being with contemplating and dramatic films at any given time. Certainly, it's one of the reasons we go to festivals. It has always been a mainstay at the Sydney Film Festival. But I'd be just as happy with more pain and glories, which tell us about the world while also inspiring us and telling us, yes, yes, we can smile, we can laugh, and we can enjoy watching Tony Banderas and Penelope Cruz on screen. <laughs> I mean, one of the bleaker films in some ways was synonyms, and yet I appreciated that Nadav Lapid, the director, was able to give moments of levity and try and make it fun to grapple with these ideas, even if it was pushing in a kind of dark direction. Because it's a very Israeli mentality. Right. <laughs> when, thing, when you've got dark subject matter and dark approach, it, it can easily just become boring in one note. Yeah. Actually, Monos. yeah, no. I was thinking of Monos, yeah. but I didn't want to say it again. <laughs> Monos, <laughs> Monos, Monos. Yeah. Uh, Synonyms is one film that Glenn, I really wish that you would have seen because yeah. more than us, I think from an Israeli cultural perspective, think, you would I have connected would have with the more. tone yeah, I think a lot so. more. Especially one the scene that we're thinking of. Oh, yeah, you're thinking of the same yeah, scene yeah. in the train with, I think. Yeah, I because think, when that happened. I was just, you know, sitting in awe and kind of in wonder almost <laughs> at what is unfolding on screen. But I yeah. think you would just relate with that so well because yeah. of how the national anthem well, is used in that scene. It's it's spectacular. Almost. And another film that um, I think is a nicely a, a positive approach. Well, is um, the Unknown Saint. Mm. Uh, and I, I, I do want to go and talk about this. I, I should just note, I really, I know you were both at the session. I really wanted to come. The only reason I didn't, and I said this across on the day, was I'd just seen the Screen Australia double I referred to earlier, and I was not in the mood for a oh, film. Yeah. Which... Even when Glenn came out of The Nightingale um, early in the festival, it was just, oh, God, I need a drink. Because earlier that day, he had seen Judy and Punch. So it was... And The Mountain. Oh, yeah. Wow. yeah. Well, so I remember a day was... of depression and, and with a sandwich of, uh, you know, where the bread is stale. The um. bread is... is, is well, the filling is... The, yeah, the filling is stale and the bread is just abuse of women, <laughs> if I can make a terrible mixed metaphor. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a, it's a nice uh, handle what I knew Glenn, was going to be yeah, a drama. Glenn could not yeah. handle. I, I remember we yeah. had to go and have some malt wine after our first night in the Sydney Oh, that, that was just there. a bad movie. To be yeah. fair. That wasn't, that wasn't t- but it was a precursor of things to come with Hugh Bowes' last short, which is incredibly depressing mm, yeah. and, and you know, had no semblance um, of any uplifting For it was referring to Ghost Town Anthology, which was the yeah, one, which was was preceded, preceded by Hugh Bowes' Sure, Hubo, the man in the well. He made the elephant sitting still last year, which which made us sit still for a long time. Four hours of uh, depression to tell us some that, bleak, bleak yeah. news about life on planet Earth, <laughs> which is like it doesn't get better. <laughs> yeah. So, like, I didn't need to yeah. wait four hours to find that out. Uh, I would say even Satan Tango was at least somewhat more uplifting than Actually, that. You know, Satan Tango um, has at least some aspects of comedy to it. You know, which uh, there's this there's this great saying that um, you'd be a poor magician to keep the audience in the dark for two hours, and you know, well, this is seven and a half hours. Laugh. We're about to to talk about all magicians soon. But yeah, yeah, I I did like going back to your point about the unknown saint. This was a great moment of levity. I thought my moment of levity would be earlier than that with the dead don't die, and it wasn't because it wasn't very good. This though, um, yeah, the best African film I saw at the festival. This film presented a moral viewpoint without being didactic about it um and it uh it didn't fall into an easy 
nihilism, which it, it easily could have with the trajectory of the plot for the for the lead and the way that things work out in terms of, you know, that we're introduced to a character with a mission at the beginning of the film and it, and the way it plays out is completely unlike what you might expect. It's like an episode of Pinky in the Brain. Yeah, but it... Oh my God! It, now, now I'm <laughs> now I'm missing out, and I don't want to see this. Movie. Right, but it finds um, damn you, Clem. It finds warmth in people's strangeness, and all the it. It's not just about um, tarnishing people, even though it ha- obviously has a moral perspective and it has people who have more and less noble agendas. It's not a film about trashing people, nor is it about bemoaning the sorry state of of the world. And this film is um, criticizing people's materialism and their approach to spirituality, but man does it do so in a less heavy-handed and ultimately more interesting and thought-provoking way than The Dead Don't Die, think- which you know goes on these tangent rants about materialism, which are just boring because if we hadn't uh, heard them all before, in the context of a zombie movie already, <laughs> maybe they, they would have had some value to them, but it was essentially but Jim Jarmusch like, doing like yeah. a lesser redo of the gags that were already in George Romero oh, movies. We, we, we've we've seen it just too much and of an item. And, the and fact then is, referencing George Romero as well. Quite yeah, if, oh, it was such a shrug. Explicitly. If the problem with this movie, what's going to Dead Don't Die, is that the genre, zombie comedy and parodies come genre unto itself. This is does nothing new with the form. That's right. Um, on, on the matter of the unknown saint, the two things I really liked about this film, it has a lot of pathetic characters, none of whom it ridicules. <laughs> it's an okay, important distinction. True. It okay. doesn't actually play them for laughs. It plays the situation for laughs. And you could enjoy the moral point it makes. Or you, And I, you know, I didn't take so many moral points away with this, unlike Chris, but I just enjoyed it purely as a strange... Um, heist movie where nothing goes to plan and it's simply hilarious and like I said last week too I just love the the world building in this it's a village where it's very small but you get to know every dynamic therein mm. and I appreciated that um, it situated us in such a well constructed and really colourful environment it's very much like I, I was re- referencing Kurzmaki previously but it's very much like a film like La Havre where you get to know all the, the people in this little environment and see how they interact and the narrative kind of gradually curls its way through this interesting enmeshed group of people and and their quirks. But part of the reason I thought of The Dead Don't Die with what we were talking about before is it epitomizes this idea of we're all doomed and whatever, nihilism. Um, But there's just something... Whatever nihilism. Not even just nihilism, just whatever. doomed if this is the future. Whatever nihilism. Nihilism with a shrug. Yeah, (laughs) everything's with a shrug. It's just so depressing that the film is articulating the viewpoint that we're all doomed, and so and that we we can't even do anything about it. Yeah, so we may as well just you know shrug wait for it, <laughs> wait for it. But Romero was at least thinking of new ideas, and he was was capturing the urgency of a moment. This is uh you know using ideas that have been well and truly recycled, so that it itself feels like a shrug. Like I I can't even be bothered to think of new ideas. You, you're shrugging off the shrug. Yeah, there's, there's, with the exception of I know we just I know you just disagree on the Tilda Swinton character, but she is something distinct, and there's nothing else in this movie the, that I, is distinct. I mentioned in, when we were talking about it last week that it really reminded me of the most recent season of Twin Peaks in a few aspects. One, um, Jamush has always done deadpan, but this particular strange dead-aired deadpan um, with and very almost monotone 
acting performances and the weird little interludes and the long lingering nature photography in between and the way that characters like Tilda Swinton's character just pop up in the narrative and then intersect with it briefly and bra- and then vanish instead of you know literally vanish randomly yeah. but a lot of character threads do this they just pop up they're not real we don't really need to see them it's just kind of stream of consciousness um so i wasn't surprised in the last few since we recorded that episode to see a bunch of jamush interviews where he's talking about how twin peaks is the greatest work of cinema in the of recent times or something like that so i i so it, put but on, it's weird that he got inspired by twin peaks and it is basically strange. like you know took the worst hot take from Twin took Peaks. Took the, the, the worst things about it because in the retro, uh, having watched Dead Don't Die and with all these films out of the way, it, it made me want to watch Twin Peaks again, as as always. So um, I put it on. And, and we've ticked it off. We've ticked off David Lynch. Off. Hello, Patriot The comparison between Fight Club. That's right. The comparison between what he was doing in Dead Don't Die and what Lynch is doing is Lynch is doing this kind of um, surreal weirdness, but he still clearly thinks the world is a wondrous and mysterious place. So to see this kind of stilted, strange um, Lynchian approach combined with just hipster irony, it just makes the whole thing feel like, oh, kill me. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, Kyle, Kyle no, McLaughlin is, 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 Kyle McLaughlin is nothing. Shows, nothing. Is, is showing like wonder at the world around him and he's surrounded and, by and all even, these weird even, characters. Even his sort of acting performances are not, if anything, they don't lack energy. If anything, they have too much energy. Right. And it, it's weird. It's, yeah, it's this was just a movie about like no one, there was no love between the characters. They don't, they didn't really care about anything. They were basically cardboard cutouts walking around waiting to die. And who can... Who has time for that? It's just a matter of if we don't have anything to do, let's throw something meta in. And there is too much meta in this yeah. film, whether it comes down to the Kayla Lambert Jones character or the line about um, Jim Jarmusch in the script. Sure, Bill Murray made a gag out of that. Adam Driver couldn't, and it was Adam too Driver much. really didn't seem like he knew what to do in this. Yeah. Oh, I think he, he, I don't think he was given any direction. He was just told, "You're Adam Driver. We saw Logan Lucky. Do your shtick. You'll be fine." But Bill no, Murray can pull that off. Tilda Swinton can pull that off. Tom Waits can pull that off. But Adam Driver, mm. without um, the direction experience of either those any of those performers, did not. It just the whole film is lazy. There is nothing Super lazy. Uh, that is either new or which says we are trying to create something. We're just trying to. Create a pastiche and the crux of all these genre, all these zombie parodies, but yeah. it, it's just a pale imitation. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, what attracted a guy as creative as Jim Jarmusch to something like this? I mean, there is uh, a gag about Star Wars in the movie, and oh, that was Bo, fine. Bo Jarmusch and the cast have admitted that you know Adam Driver's frustration was he wanted people to see Star Wars at least, and none of the cast. Like nah, I'm not interested. I'm not going to watch Star Wars, but they wow. still made. But they still made a gag about it. So it's interesting that you know. So Chamush never watched. Yeah, yeah. Or, <laughs> or like, that you should not, actually not, watch. I'm in this. Yeah, yeah. Bi- I'm in this big movie, guys. I play Kylo Ren, the new Darth Vader. Exactly. Come on. So I, I can. He's sounding a, like Castor Troy. I can do the peach for hours. I'm going to take my face off, Castor Troy, indeed. What of yours, Sean? Oh my god! Like oh god. we should have just have a face-off marathon. Actually, no, you, did, you, did you do the all-night loving, cinema loving? Uh, you know, I considered it. No. Um, I ultimately Would that have had a change in the movie. Look, I just thought if that's one of those things where it's like, um, it's a great idea on paper, but <laughs> there's a reason why midnight movies are midnight movies. You know, like your brain isn't necessarily up for something challenging. And in the realm of the senses, yeah, playing and it, Eraserhead, like yeah, ira- what, what, I mean, what a double. Eraserhead is a midnight movie I can see because it's just weird and um, 
it feels creepy, like it should play in the middle of the night, and it's there's not a lot of plot going on. It's just you, moods you need, to sink into. You need some help of some, you know, third party. <laughs> you may, <laughs> but then there's there's a suddenly in the realm of the senses, you know, a hardcore art art movie playing at twelve a.m. and uh, the 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 festival involves cramming a lot of movies together. So to see f- for a lot of people, so to see four in a row overnight. And um, only probably Eraserhead and the John Waters film Female Trouble, I think, really sounded like the kind of trash movies you yeah. should program. Five hours in between. I guess yeah. Myth really got it right with the Cajeton last year. So they knew with the kind and of John dynamic. And I don't know. Cage, yeah. Cage, yeah. But at least still Nicolas Cage... Like his kind of energy, his energy is something that you can like, you know, can do a midnight madness because it's technically is like. Imagine if they did an all night Satan tango, like from midnight midnight till seven a.m. That would be nihilistic. Like I would actually (laughs) want to come out of that movie, and I can see that why the world would have no hope and whatever coming out of that sensation. But um, oh my god, yeah, that that. What have you like? I wanted to do. I wanted to do that all night, all night movie madness, um, but. Cinema Lovin' or whatever yeah, they call cinema it. Cinema Lovin'. God, what, no, what a name. What, what do they do that night? I actually, I went to Fresh Flicks. I did my one non-festival right. thing. I went to Fresh Flicks, which was after Akasha. And that was really yeah, good. But I just thought, who after... I would have seen five films that day. And then who... I would have had to watch four more in a row overnight. Yeah. Um, and we were doing... Uh, I, I just think, yeah. like... You would be ready for any Sunday movies. We would have missed The Nightingale. Yeah, and your brain, I think, would just be dead. The attempt to try and keep up with this information, yeah, and like you're, you're just recovering from a, a mammoth three-hour film. Would like I've never seen it. Oh, Lucky Man! I've heard it's great, um, but to to then soldier on after a ten-minute break for another film, and it's five a.m. Oh yeah, I, I, no I, way. I, I did, and I did an out of day of films after <clears throat> an all-nighter recently. Um, when it was the Champions League final. But that was preceded by um, the Ramadan Markets and Mario Kart, whereas watching more films preceding that, it's just way too much. I don't, much. I don't believe it. You ran away from Tokyo's Vampire Hotel. And but you, so. The anyway. sin, the sin, just going to keep bringing again. it up every, every <laughs> yeah, couple yeah, of I weeks. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. And I went to the Ramadan Markets instead, and it was amazing. Wouldn't the all-night Cine Love-In have, I, I guess, you know, to get any kind of event like this going in Sydney, you have to tie it to the, the Sydney Film Festival and the big logo. You could do it with the Underground Film Festival. Totally. It makes sense for the Sydney Underground. It, I would do it in, you know, some other long weekend. It's a different time of the year. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, also the, the curators yeah. at the Sydney Underground Film Festival are more likely to understand that madness dynamic than you know. It was definitely yeah. strange. The programmers they, 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 it was sort of marketed like trash, yeah. serial morning thing. Actually, interesting on that point. Um, this was this. I remember seeing this in the program when it started, but it completely slipped my mind. There were two animation short sessions: one regular and one adult, which screened at night at Dandy Newtown. I don't know if anyone went to see this. Was this in but Sydney it's Film Festival? At the Sydney Film Festival, wow. and it was identical to a program, or seemingly identical to the program run by the Sydney Underground Film Festival, where they program morning animation like Scooby Doo and later adult animation, which was much more R-rated stuff. What do you mean Scooby Doo is definitely adult? What are you talking about, Glenn? Okay, okay. I love mm-hmm. Scooby Doo. It is. Well, Dennis the Menace is definitely for adults. <laughs> But yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's curious that in the marketing, at least, it, they were going exactly what the Underground Film Festival was going for. And they went for this vibe. I have a problem with, certainly there were a lot of films, The Amazing Jonathan, which we're going to talk about, which worked very well at the Underground Film Festival. I appreciate that these films are there, but there is a very different 
vibe. And I, I, if City Film Festival want to build it, that's fine. I just feel they may have to be more careful in the curatorial choices. Well, they're selling more tickets, I guess. So I guess yeah, one hundred and eighty thousand or something. Ten percent of an increase from last year, apparently. It's oh. massive, and has been increased funding for the festival too, which yeah. is big news. And yeah, congratulations on Nishan for securing four more years, which is more than any of our prime ministers are getting. That's our political joke of the night. Back to the movies. So Nishan's, Nishan's going, for, going for four more years? I think so. I think from yes. what I read. Oh, I, I didn't know that. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah, good for Nishan. Me, yeah. Interesting. Oh, good for, good for Nishan. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, yeah love yeah. Nishan. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah he, he has a pretty eclectic taste in terms of, I'd say, uh, well, not just cinema generally, but yeah. South Asian and African cinema and uh, yeah. under so, his stewardship has seen repulsion and, and rise during the City Film Festival at, the S- at SFF. Propulsion, and okay. Yeah. Propulsion's the wrong word. It, 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 it's propulsion, what I'm saying. It's increased. It's increased. There's <laughs> much more better word. Um, and, yeah, I, I, do, I do appreciate that. And there's always been those, that quality of cinema we saw this year with um, The Unknown Saint and Parasite, no less. Mm. Yeah, and uh, even, you know, and it's, it's interesting to see like he is the face of the Sydney Film Festival, and his ideas about diversity and what kind of programming and the kind of films always pushing from different parts of the world. I mean, you know, you you wouldn't get something like Akasha, Akasha for example. I don't think would get played at a festival circuit otherwise, apart from Nishen really pushing that together, or something like Sweet Requiem from Nepal or the Bangladesh film like Saturday Afternoon. These are areas that you don't usually get to see movies from. So it's interesting the Sydney Film Festival can push that. Yeah. But, you know, coming back to some of the more odd choices, like The Amazing Jonathan, which I saw quite early on. Should we go on but, to talk about you know, it? You May guys well. were quite we late. But before we go on to talk about it, I want to thank everyone for the discussion we just had and for the ensuing episode. And if and we have discussed some quite serious issues. And if you is someone you want to talk to, um, about any of the issues raised or if anybody, or if, about those themes, certainly we do encourage you to reach out. Um, there are a couple of numbers we're going to provide. One is the 1-800-RESPECT. That number is 1-800-737-732. And the other is Lifeline, uh, which is an excellent service. That number is 131114. That's 131114. And we do encourage you, if you so wish and if you so feel the need to seek out support, to seek support from either of those or other like services in Australia who do amazing work. Next up, we are talking about the amazing Jonathan documentary. This is one we caught, at least uh, Chris and I caught in the last day of the festival. Right at the end. Right at the end. It is amazing Jonathan is a magician who in the States, a very prominent one, who tours around the country, does a lot of shows in Vegas, you know, Penn and Teller, that sort of crowd. And this is a documentary by Ben Berman. When Ben Berman found out that amazing Jonathan had um, not very long to live. And he starts recording a documentary about him, about his life, and about his struggle in what are respectively <coughs> his last days. This is at least the first act of the documentary. It soon becomes clear that there are more. there is more than one documentary crew chronicling Jonathan's life and the story. And at that point, the documentary takes a much more meta and reflexive approach as Berman steadily is not sure exactly what is going on, but instead of disambiguating Jonathan's life, begins to disambiguate the documentary itself yeah. and the environment that has cropped up around the amazing Jonathan. He, We mentioned Ben Berman's name because you can't forget Ben Berman. Ben Berman becomes the focus of this documentary more ben than... Berman, ben Berman, Ben Berman. Ben Berman, More than the amazing Jonathan himself. I think the reason for this, as Glenn was alluding to, I'll spell it out a bit more... There are multiple documentaries about Amazing Jonathan being made at the same time, and 
Ben Berman starts to wonder if he's being pranked because he was not informed um, by Jonathan, who uh, you get the sense that Jonathan is enjoying screwing with the documentary crews by saying, oh, did I not tell you? There's another documentary also being made. Um, and Jonathan decides to prioritize that film over Ben Berman. So Ben Berman feels a little bit thr- you know, thrown and starts to wonder if he's being pranked. And um, he analyzes his own reasons for pursuing this project. And uh, ultimately, it becomes about, in that way, himself, um, the place he's coming from, the reason why he interpreted Jonathan's actions in the way he did. But the issue is that Ben Berman is not that interesting a screen presence. Amazing Jonathan is. And I get the sense that he's afraid to make a conventional Amazing Jonathan documentary because that he's just been pipped by this other crew making making the other film that he wasn't aware of. So the film, and it's this kind of winding revenge story that at the last minute turns on itself. You know, it... it um, it goes in too many directions, and I think most of them aren't interesting enough. Um, I don't think there's enough material to last a full, you know, ninety minutes here. Um, to the revenge point, I absolutely agree. It reminds me of the um, one of Louis Thoreau's lesser documentaries, which was the one about the Church of Scientology, where he decides. How dare to... you? That was a great documentary. Uh, no, it wasn't because he hangs the whole documentary on him discovering that there's this little piece of road that the church have apparently said it's ours or it's actually public, and he goes and says, "No, no, it's public. I can do what I want." Great, you got him. And this mm. feels just as cheap and just as less in terms of the people he goes after. Us. It's like a he has a "I gotcha" moment, but who really cares about the people? About, about this scenario where he's trying to go um, or the individuals it's like okay great you won mate Muscle, the, well done the strangeness of there being two documentaries lasts for a little bit but the problem is that Ben Berman in talking he would probably have been better if he hadn't put literally put himself on screen oh yeah if there had been some maybe some degree of voiceover explaining himself and uh, explaining why he's making the film in this direction it could have been better but he has attempted to um, survive as like as a presence on screen and he doesn't have the charisma and his moments feel too kind of stilted and too written and, and too constructed. I understand that he probably felt forced into making the film along these lines because he couldn't follow his original trajectory, but surely there was a, there's a more interesting way. It reminds me, I remember we talked last year about the Bill Murray stories, the Tommy Avalone documentary. This is a better film than that, I um, will say. Well, in this, in that documentary, it is all about the urban legends about Bill Murray and how this documentary filmmaker Tommy Avalone tries to track down Bill and his people who have seen him, you know, washing up dishes or partying at a house or doing whatever. And I remember a comment Chris made at the time, which was, "And the best thing about this documentary is Bill Murray, and the worst thing is the documentary filmmaker." I feel that actually really applies here. I preferred the Bill Murray stories, and I'm going to say I preferred it because it at least had a clear direction. Um, there was a mystery deduction no. element to it, and and it was also for the reasons we've discussed and arranged other things in this podcast. It was just enlivening and uplifting. Whereas this is just we're trying to okay, you know, Look, pinpoint, I, pin I, this guy down, and it feels a I, little. I, I, th- I think it's quite quite enlivening and quite lively, to be honest, because of the unpredictability of a lot of the actions unfolding. I think the way that it it has this strange, um, conflicted approach with its star, and it does change direction. Um, I don't view those as so much problems with the film as much as that the change in direction is to things that are pretty obvious and thus get 
um, for longer on screen for longer than they should be, and that the new direction in it finds it just isn't as interesting or compelling. Like I'm interested in the story of your death. Um, isn't that huge a, a revelation or a scumbag moment for Ben Berman? Because we're all interested in the story because of the death. That's the hook of the documentary. It's natural to wonder why people confront death. It doesn't make you a, a scummy person for using Maybe that angle on a documentary about Avalon, someone going on his last we tour. Sh- we, should, we should contextualize. Someone with a, ter- someone with a terminal illness yep. going on their last tour is what the film's yep. about. And Ben Berman um, starts to wonder if he's being exploitative of, of the guy's death. Well, yeah, I would have thought. Is, yeah. I would have thought this is just like a, 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 given. a given with the subject matter that this is the human interest. This is the reason why people are interested in watching a documentary about Amazing Jonathan right now. But as has been said, he wasn't able to sustain the premise over even half or less than half the film because he just wasn't interesting an individual. He thought he was interesting, and to the point of these long hold shots on landscapes, there are just these ironically detached moments where we just sit and look at him, and he's not interesting. It's not making any ben point. Berman. Yes, hmm. um, there were the camera just rests them, and all the people well, that around act. him. He's He's trying to cre- he's not, generate the emotion that's not there in, in the flow and, of the material. At least Avalone could, Avalone could hold this premise throughout an entire movie. Yes, he was. his actions were a little frustrating at times, but you still found yourself going along with it. I couldn't find myself going along with Berman's antics for even half of the movie that he was in it. I agree. Berman is not interesting, but it's still what is fascinating to see that even though the amazing Jonathan himself is probably only in one third of the film, he still manages to be the best part about it. Amazing Jonathan is interesting. Because he's he, interesting. he's he's but he's, a, but he's deliberately obtuse. Mm. Which Which is what makes him interesting. A struggle for the documentary filmmaker. Yeah. Which he doesn't unpack especially well. And to use it as an example of comparison where a film does this very well, which is a film that is heavily referenced and a practical part of this movie, the Sixto Rodriguez documentary, which won the Academy Awards several years ago, Searching for Sugar Man, um, which I have a bit of a personal connection to. I love this movie so, so much. It has the situation where a filmmaker has to make themselves a part of it by virtue of unexpectedly the narrative and what they're investigating shifting halfway through. This is an example of how it's done very well. It was frustrating and constant reminder to see um, in this film that they're constantly referencing a documentary filmmaker, a documentary who does it better and just reminding us, here's how it could have been done had a more proficient filmmaker who actually features, the producer of Searching for Sugar Man features in this movie, been behind the helm and he wasn't here. That film um, went with the flow and switched up when they realized, oh, wait, this is what we have to uncover regarding Sixer Rodriguez and this doesn't. He just, he just he just tries to pursue an ironic detachment throughout and he doesn't which doesn't promote the investment in his character in his subject which searching for Sugarman so dearly had I'm probably a bit more positive about it mainly because the film at least is more open to going in new directions even though it doesn't really you know fare well in a lot of these directions it at least goes in places which you know a lot it's, of the films are have been just so plain in their narrative. Yeah. You know, approaches. It's, it's rare that you see a documentary about a subject that refuses to cooperate and swerves uh, in terms of what it's. And then the documentary kind of decides through. that you know, hang on, we're not gonna you know play with your rules, and I'm just gonna make it up as I go along. And then actually be brave enough to try different things. I'm not saying it succeeds all the time, but still, given the amount of films that I saw it, you know, subsequently, which just held to narrative convention, I was at least happy that this tried something different, even though it didn't always succeed. Can I ask, um, not having seen it, uh, given a subject in the documentary who fails to really get along with the filmmakers, how does it compare to the Steve Vadden documentary which screened The Brink? Honestly, in The Brink, um, I longed for more confrontation um, 
Chanel pointed out that the best scene in the film, and I would agree with this, when I was describing in the last episode how he's being given softballs all the time, the best episode is when he speaks to a Guardian journalist who actually calls him to task on some of his claims and some of his statements and says, surely you don't really believe that, and you can't believe that. Um, Most of the time, the brink to me seemed like it was satisfied that people would find Steve Bannon um, disgusting just by placing a camera on him when he's way too meat smart and media trained to let an unflattering portrait go out with his blessing and his cooperation. I I agree. I mean, with at least the brink... What's different is I think it's preaching to the converted. It's already the audience is in on the joke, and most people are going to see that movie already have a preconceived notion of Steve Bannon. So you're not going to change any minds. It's not going to tell you anything different. With the Amazing Jonathan, at least, I mean, you do have a preconceived notion of what Amazing Jonathan is going to be like. You have some kind of an idea already, and given his antics, you already have a perception of him. But I'm actually appreciative of Ben Berman. I can't forget that name now, ever. I actually know Ben Berman. Hey, Ben. Really? Yeah. Oh, hello, Ben Berman. You remind me of Ben Sherman, the brand I really like, but, you know, you have a better name. But anyway, (laughs) hello, Ben. I really appreciated that you at least went ahead and made the movie the way you wanted to make it. It's it's appreciative. it's, It's rare. It's brave. And it was different. I really... It's the first movie I saw at the festival. Started my kickoff my festival with this movie. Really happy with that. So there's the amazing Donald documentary. I'm um, just to note, as so far as we compared it to the Brink, <coughs> um, one film we haven't discussed is the Chills documentary, the Triumph and Tragedy of Martin Phillips, which is um, which is about a subject Martin Phillips, who is very much. Um, cooperating with the filmmakers, but uh, likewise, at the beginning of the documentary, it's stated that he has uh, less than a year to live. Um, there, uh, fairly part in due to the fact that he was cooperating with the filmmakers, but I think it's it's a very intimate portrait and one that's really rewarding and it deals with the consequences um, of uh, impending death, even if it doesn't deal with so st- strongly the reflexive role of the filmmakers in this. Um, it's especially good if you are a fan of the band, that sort of music. I, I do encourage you to seek it out. The next film we are talking about is Midnight Family. Midnight Family was one of the late editions. Uh, so I shouldn't say nope. a late edition. No, it was there from the start, but it was uh, one of the uh, late... Uh, uh, yeah, the, w- one of the ones we <laughs> caught... Um, it was technically following the festival, but it was in the popular encore section because everyone wanted to see it. So we caught it at the Dendi Newtown the other night right before Portrait of a Lady on Fire. It is a documentary about a family in Mexico who run a, uh, a, a private ambulance service, which isn't exactly ex- properly permitted by the government. Essentially, there are only so many ambulances well, available in Mexico the gov- City. Yeah, there are the, a text at the beginning of the screen explains there are 45 uh, government ambulances for a city of nine million, so the bulk is picked up by private ambulances who have to negotiate, uh, have to compete with each other in order to pick up a fare, and often aren't even paid by the people that they pick up and transport. Oftentimes, they'll, they'll help them because they'll help someone yeah, lying they on the give ground. People life saving first aid, and then can't necessarily afford them or won't get paid. Yeah, and it follows a family over several encounters, several quite some of very confronting. Yeah. I, Glenn, Glenn was not a fan, so I'd like to hear why. I liked segments of this film. I liked the segments which were, which did capture some of the more confronting and, in some cases, harrowing events in these folks' lives. I also appreciated some of the moments when we got a 
and encounter them in their home and their off time and how they related to each other, certainly having seen so much trauma in the course of so many hours every night. Mm. Um, However, this entire documentary, uh, these moments were interspersed with um, really nothing moments where whether it was just um, watch and what, whether it was like stock shots of the city or else, which really broke up the momentum, I found. I didn't I, think there were that many of those, though. There, there were enough that, I mean, the bits where it was them just driving around and it was the front on view and they were just chatting or someone was on the phone on the sidewalk talking about their night, that was more interesting. But there were moments where the ambulance was just shown to the remove and we or where they're just showing the landscape. We talked about how this is just thrown in for no reason. So I, 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 I don't so. think, think most of those scenes were basically ambulances chasing each other. Actually, it was quite uh, yeah, more dramatic. I found, than I found these... Um, Landscape, you know, wide removed from the the ambulance shots to be pretty few and far between, and they served as breathers because for the most part, this film is very much in the moment. It's tracking them as they pick up a call, as they reach somewhere where life is hanging in the balance, and we witness the madness of the way that the police are trying to extort them, and they're competing with other ambulances just to, to keep somebody alive. It's really um, showing you the a system falling apart and failing to look after its people but instead of doing so through exposition and heavy-handed explanation it's through putting you in the moments that illustrate that um i I think it did a really good job at at drawing you just into this little universe inside the ambulance as it goes to a lot of very personal moments um it's it's intimate but it's also sprawling um in that how i think what the wider kind of um, image landscape shots you were talking about are trying to expand this small kind of story to this a larger society. But then the effect of that was so much better achieved in the moments where you had them interacting in the times between when you had a call or when you were in a rush and you could have just as well filled it with that. There were too many which just stopped what was a incredibly interesting momentum and which had you engaged have you really because it it, it stopped like being like you were on a night out with them it was just like you were treating to vignettes and it's a very strong distinction in terms of how the film was sold and how it was most effective at least in the first act where it did follow the structure more completely I mean I don't think there are that many of these breaks to be honest it's a very lean 80 minute film I only recall a few times stopping the rest of the time we're constantly look, look at sped up traffic. Well, most of the time, yeah, we're we're just cutting, you know, through traffic jams, and um, we get to know people mostly through just things they say to each other on the job in the in the family. Yeah, um, the, the I, family dynamic was really interesting, and I how like, how the young yeah. and then the father figure and they interact, and especially in yeah, and just how they're just trying to make a living, which is kind of impossible in this situation. Mm. I liked how immediate and in the moment it was. Mm. So that is Midnight Family. Uh, the next film we're talking about is Eurydice Guzmao. Yeah, The Invisible Life of Eurydice Guzmao. Uh, yeah, <laughs> the, the, the second Eurydice, which is not in uh, Portrait of a Lady. This, of, this was a late edition, right? Uh, yes, it was. From Cannes. It was, won the Uncertain Regard Prize at Cannes this year. Um, look, it's another film in keeping with the theme we were talking about earlier about um, violence against women and feminist perspectives on women being kept down. It, but it comes at this with a, from a very heavy-handed approach where um, every every single guy in the narrative is exaggeratedly stupid. Um, the way it's shot it, and uh, some of the tricks with style early on 
um, the Wonka Y-ish kind of stuttering frame rate um, and the really <laughs> rich saturated colors make it quite initially intoxicating. Um, the sound design is amazing. Yes, you know? I do agree with that. Yeah. Um, but I think the trajectory of this narrative is too broadly um, conventional, I guess. It, the, the ending is just way too sort of titanic. It, it, it starts with a lot of interest um, in setting up these two, the story of two sisters being separated by um, their ultra religious father, you know, telling lies to stop them from ever meeting again. Mm-hmm. But then once they've settled into their own lives and it seems less and less likely that they'll get together again, there's no more narrative momentum. And yeah. so it just becomes sort of slices of life, but um, without enough depth to work without that, this, you know, mystery thrust. Um, and I, I think ultimately, yeah. yeah, as I was saying before, the the issue of, of making a feminist story the easy way by presenting every man as, as a buffoon, um, the whole film kind of comes at, at things with that level of, of characterization. So to work as a realistic drama, there just wasn't really enough there. I mean, not just, uh, I would say, every man is a buffoon, but any other character apart from the two sisters wasn't developed enough. And also, But also, there was also... Um, the friend of the the sister who became like her mother and her sister and yeah. her father, as she put uh, it. Uh, yeah, let's get to some of those characters. For example, let's say the mother of the of you know of the family and the fate she receives is a very cliched, obviously you know almost a plot device to you know uh, of reconciliation because you know it just had to be there and that becomes a catalyst for the uh, you know for the father to somehow be redeemed in some sense. Uh, also, the the husband figure is not only buffoonish in his actions, but he practically looks like a buffoon as well. The husband, no, you he know. was he was just a fool. I know, I know, but also no like the kind of weird, bones. you know, uh, cartoonish mustache and the mole. Oh that he yeah, has. yeah, like he he practically looks like a buffoonish figure, not just acting like a buffoon and feeling like you know emasculated every two seconds just because you know uh, she had some dreams. So it. it it was it was hard to relate to any of these characters in some any kind of realistic way yeah. apart from the two sisters and their initial drives and dreams and the kind of narrative plot device throughout the middle of these two sisters living their lives it was parallel to each other the, the, and the, yet you know so close yet so far became frustrating there's a degree of magic to it for the first half or so yeah. um but yeah i found it quickly eroded and by the time it ended it was very, very safe. I think you can almost guarantee this film to uh, see a release at Dandy Opera Keys sometime in the next year or so. Sony Pictures financed it, and as I understand it, it's based on a quite popular in English translation book, and it yeah. feels very conventional. The 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 kind of tragic turn for Eurydice's character in terms of mental health just was so hackneyed and just not handled with any kind of nuance, and I felt like... What it's, it's very it was it's just like one, of those, one of those one of those WTF <laughs> moments. Be- beaches, as in the be- the, the Bette Midler film. More, okay, more, it's more, not quite more like peaches. Peaches, it's, yeah. It's let's not call quite it peaches. Peaches, but I don't know. I I think I just really wanted to drop a beaches comparison. Just <laughs> the shock <laughs> impact of beaches. Okay, it's all right. Beaches you know, that the, the beaches of Agnes. That film referred to in sitcoms <laughs> the nineties. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The beaches of Agnes. We're talking about Agnes Varda, so that there you go. That's the beaches we're talking about. Yeah, Agnes Varda's famous beaches. With <laughs> well, they, they definitely were. Yeah. Should, should we talk about Agnes Varda? 
Yeah, yeah I guess yeah, it's a nice Agnes. 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 Agnes is really nice. Um, or Agnes to be Rhonda. honest, I question how much we actually have to say about it. Because nice is the number one thing for me. Um, but that's, I think it's an important point to make because there are not many films which have been genuinely heartwarming and nice and yeah. haven't evoked that kind of feeling well, in this festival. Agnes Varda comes across as even more unique with regard to the trends of this festival we were talking about earlier because Varda did not shy away from serious subjects and she did depict in some of her films the misery that is out there in the world. But she had such a playful perspective. Her films are ultimately optimistic um, and she was always interested in people's unique humanity um, and the things that make other people wonderful and the reasons why it's pleasurable to exist in the world. And Vada by Agnes, is, uh, her final film, is really just a collection of scenes of her giving masterclasses where she talks through the films as well as the installation art and the photography she's done in her career, and she talks a little bit about the process behind all of it. And really, I think... She made this film seemingly with the knowledge she was going to die soon. It's just a way of summing up her life's work and, um, yeah, and saying goodbye in a, in a personal way to people who might have known her work. But the reason why it's so affecting is that she is such a, a remarkable person, that she has such a um, love of life and a love of other people and a desire to share things with other people, which is what motivates her work, as she explains at the beginning of the film. Um, so... Even though I don't think this is anything groundbreaking as a work of filmmaking or as a documentary or even really as an addition to Agnes Varda's work, it's refreshing. And I think her um, approach towards making art and towards film is something that more people should be heeding right now. Um, it doesn't It doesn't all have to be about you know, <laughs> a, a competition to be the most nihilistic, uh, the most savagely brutal merchant of doom. I, I wholeheartedly agree, Chris. I mean, uh, for one... You know, this is a Talking Heads documentary, so a lot of people might be put off by the fact that it is a very conventionally Talking Heads documentary. Mm. But uh, what I found to be incredibly refreshing is that there's so much Varda. She's such a giving person, mm. which you don't usually find in the arts, no. full of male directors who are so full of themselves and try to guard their ways of filmmaking and try to be deliberately obtuse and she's mysterious. She's super generous. She wants, yeah. to, she wants to inspire she, people and yeah. show them what she did. Yeah, exactly. And she is able to also translate her filmmaking process in such a simple language that yeah. you can understand, and which not a lot of people can do. What's also amazing about Agnes Varda is the way that she manages to often change the subject back to herself throughout <laughs> a lot of her filmography and yeah. yet not come across as a narcissist because she's so giving, both in terms of trying to give audiences a good time and... Um, being honest about herself, being self-deprecating, um, it's not. It's not all about look at look at how grand my artistry yeah. is. She, which that really makes her unique among these kind of big name directors. That it's so little. It's such. A, she's really about drawing you into a personal world with people I, like I agree. like rubbish collectors. I you know. know? Um, just, but, but and what is also like every, she has you just really have a the, smile yeah. on your face while she you're does. watching it. She really has the idea that everyone has something to say and everyone yeah. has something to share, and people should be encouraged to share. And, and, and it's weird by just it's so you know, utopian, really. What, know. Her, what her work stands for, <laughs> but also like like I, I'm just smiling and being happy right now, just trying to recall scenes from the yeah. film, mainly because like it's very. Beautiful, I, 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 
Because I think, like, you know, there, we live in the arts and we live in, in a community of people where uh, everyone is so self-obsessed about how, and they have these sense of grandeur and these kind of delusions of grandeur almost. So it's it's interesting to come across a person who has none of that, and yet they're the subject for the entirety of the film, which mm. kind of feels like a sense of conflict, but it's not. It's, it's a beautiful homage to mm. what filmmaking can do. So that is Vada by Agnes. The last we're discussing is Maradona. Yeah, I, I called this, uh, uh, which is a you know, documentary by Asif Kaparia, who also made Amy on Amy Winehouse and Senna earlier. He's done a lot of uh, those kind of documentaries, which use a lot of archival footage to recreate, uh, you know, and ask questions about uh, personas and characters and, you know, what did you know? Did you really know this person or let me recreate a different perspective about this person's life for you using archival footage. This is kind of the same structure and style with Maradona as well. Most of the documentary is using already conceived archival footage. There's nothing new in terms of footage and, and you know things that you probably don't know about from his life. But it's interesting what Kapari is you know trying to talk about is this outsider's perspective, and particularly, I think Slam is a good comparison point here. When you're talking about a migrant experience or supposedly a person from a minority who breaks barriers and then achieves a lot of fame, becomes a symbol of hope, and then is deliberately brought down because he's become that. Right, okay. And, and you know, uh, it's interesting that, not saying that Maradona himself was not complicit in a lot of the things he did. He clearly made a lot of wrong choices and decisions. But the documentaries focus is not on his actions. I think we all know his actions. But it's also about the structural kind of, you know, mechanisms which allow or maybe not allow a person to achieve too much fame. And if they do, then you're allowed to sort of put back in your place because of where you came from. Mm. So it's interesting from that perspective how this documentary chose not the obvious part. It used Maradona as a construct to talk about other issues surrounding Maradona, but not himself. That makes it sound really interesting. Uh, yeah, it, it was an interesting film because, you know, from a completely, uh, I guess, technical point of view, it's not that interesting because using already existing archival footage. Is the editing but, good? But the editing is really good because, you know, you get a sense of narrative and all the major highlights of his life about, you know, the hand of God and everything are dealt with pretty much in the first half of the film. So you actually get to uncover a lot more of the other ground supposedly the, not the big incidents of his life which take prominence in the film rather than all the kind of highlights that you already know about him. Mm. Right. So that is Maradona. That is at least the last of our contemporary Sydney Film Festival reviews because next week we're going to be talking about two films that are in general release but have screened as part of the festival, which will be Parasite and Yesterday, which will be opening next Thursday. Yesterday opening next Thursday. <laughs> it gets, gets confusing. But yeah, we'll be dropping a lot of Beatles puns, a lot of Beatles puns. It and uh, I was just going to say as we're wrapping up, I miss the festival. Yeah, you know, I've, I've complained a lot about it, but it's so nice being around the people you love, sharing this interest, um, the socializing in and around the sessions, the people constantly being interested in what you have to say and you being interested in what they have to say about films, everyone getting excited about films, running into, you know, just feeling the the energy of this community you know that you could say that the Sydney film scene is fairly beleaguered, but for these two weeks, it it feels alive and it feels really nice to be a part of it. 
and yeah, I'm so thankful we get to do this every year. I, I agree with you, Chris. I mean, as my very subcontinent dad says, I scold you because I love you. Right. And which is why we complain about the festival yeah. because we really do care about it. You know, That's right. So we, we, we're possessive about it. So yeah. Yeah, we had a lot of complaints this year, but I think we still overall had an incredible time. I know I did. I, I did too. I had an absolute ball. And you push yourself and you see people you haven't seen in a while or don't see any other time of year. Um, you have friends uh, who will seek out you out and say, or you, you can seek out and say, hey, what do you want to see this year? See something new and see something special. A lot, a lot of times for everyone else gets to see it. And I think I mean, we've talked about our favorite films, but three of my absolute favorite moments from this festival were on closing night, seeing my friend Mara, who I hadn't seen in the year, who's a filmmaker, and dancing till 1.30. Um, I did mention this last week in the show, but in the Hail Satan line, when we had to figure out which line it was, I'd say Hail Satan. Someone would say, Hail Satan, Hail Satan. I got to say that film, by the way. Ah, I liked it. Yeah, yeah very, it's, very, it's also coming out very soon. It's very next soon, month, coming next in July. Month, right? yeah, we, should review, we should review yeah, that. We yeah. will review Hell Satan 2 in the coming week. But my absolute, <laughs> we will review Hell Satan. Hell Satan? Hell Satan? Hell Satan. But my absolute favorite moment from the whole festival, and it wasn't something that um, was in a movie or in a theater even, it was just hanging out with a bunch of friends late one night, um, including Chris, who um, somewhere from out of town, someone I hadn't seen in a while, and we were talking the festival, and then we got into... Keanu Reeves and we all started sharing our favorite Keanu Reeves stories yeah. and it was this wonderful nice moment movie where, festival magic yeah, yeah which is also the entire internet right now I think it's filled with Keanu Reeves yeah, love yeah Keanu Reeves love is an all time high yeah, yeah he's uh, he's the man he was the best mm-hmm. thing about Boys Who Me Maybe he made that he perfectly skews his public image he was absolute gold it's worth seeing just for like the 15 minutes he's in it Right. No, no, I, I think uh, Always Be My Maybe would be an interesting rom-com to talk about as well because I think the in- film is really good. I'd, I'd be happy to talk about it. Well, actually, what other films have been out? Are you know, we're at the festival. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. What are the normal Happy films? as Lazaro, which is a great film, was, uh, I, I hope that's still showing. I haven't checked, but that was sent to die against the Sydney Film Festival, yeah. competing against but the main But it's okay, the dead don't die. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, Men in Black International. Yeah, I've heard that's really bad. I've heard that's terrible. I've Ew. seen I'm, two reviews I, that have said it's funny, it's okay, but decently funny. Every every other reviewer has said it's awful and unwatchable. Yeah, I keep hearing it's way worse than it, you would think or that it should worse be. Worse than Men in Black 2, which is hard. Men in Black 2 was terrible. The new yeah. Netflix film, Adam Sandler, Jennifer Aniston. Oh, oh yeah, Murder, murder Mystery. mystery. I, I love how the names, like, they don't even care anymore. So, it's just like, <laughs> yeah, this one's a murder mystery. So, yeah, call it Murder Mystery. All right. Netflix apparently released some data. 30.3 million have watched it already, supposedly. Well, yeah. do I trust Netflix data because they have a vested interest in releasing data, which is, you know... Very Apparently, shows them in good good light. They've kept um, even before this new figure. They've maintained that the Adam Sandler films are extremely successful for them. Even yes, Pixels. Even um, what's it called? Uh, the Pixels wasn't a Netflix flick, but oh, okay. what was um, to do the Hateful Six? The, uh, the uh, ridiculous, the ridiculous six. six. The ridiculous. Yeah. They, they, like there was so low effort in uh, in that title, but and like, to see them reverse from the ridiculous six to just murder, murder mystery. All right. But also, like, does Adam Sandler had that kind of clout? I guess so. Yeah, he yeah, clearly he does. does. He people, does. people love Adam Sandler. Do they rub? Do they rub? Do they love Robin Schneider? God, that was oh, horrible. Is, is he still love Robin Schneider? I haven't seen Adam Sandler. I think films Robin since Schneider that's my boy. just gets paychecks for <laughs> do like guest appearance in Adam yeah. Sandler films. Is he in Murder Mystery? Tell us. 
Uh, I haven't seen Adam Sandler film since That's My Boy. That was seven years ago. Since Happy You haven't seen Mayor Road Stories? That's a pretty good one. No, I didn't. Oh, it's yeah, good film. Yeah, that's right. Family in New I York. forgot because, you know, you get these once in a generation Adam Sandler movies yeah. like Punch Drunk Love and then Mayor Stories. That's what we yeah. which, out for. which you kind of forget that he's actually Adam Sandler. Did anyone see Rain Over Me? I never saw it, but apparently. I missed it, was... it too, yeah. No, but yeah. that was another one. Alongside the Spanglish. Those Spanglish are the, those are the... I put Wedding Singer in there. Yeah, but that that it also has some pretty ext- uh, outrageous comedy in it. So yeah, um, skirting the line. Yeah. Did anyone see the new Godzilla? That's out now. No, I heard it also it was terrible. It was I've just, bad. I've just. Been, I am so happy you know, the Sydney Film Festival made sure that I could forget about all these bad movies. Yeah, that, that's one of the reviewing Men in Black. One of the reasons. Uh, God, I'm not watching Men in Black. No, I've got, I, 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 I don't think if it's on TV in a year's time, sure. One of the one of the reasons why I was happy to have the festival on and sad for it to go is because it really is just a, a dearth of quality films out right now. I would tell anyone still listening, go and watch Happy as Lazaro if that's still playing. That's yeah. really good. Um, that should be playing at Palace Cinemas. Mm. So this is, yeah, thank you for joining us for our festival, festival Music. The songs, the songs I'm singing. singing. Was there any ABBA theme films? There was no ABBA. No, I, I don't, don't think I even heard Give me ABBA a once. festival after midnight. If, uh, give well, a, yeah, well, we yeah, we tried. We tried. Right? <laughs> it didn't we gave work. you the all-night cine loving. <laughs> yeah. And we had to put it on the $10 tickets list, even though yes, the tickets were $49. It was, it was on the, ten- was the whole the thing. thing. The whole thing went, ended up on the $10 tickets list. Oh, Even wow. though there were no individual sessions, so it was $49. So goddamn weird. So clearly this experiment did not work. So many people, so many people. If I had known that, I would have gone with $10 for a raise ahead. I probably I considered it, but I thought... Uh, oh, yeah, whatever. We were already wrecked. Actually, it was Fresh yeah. Flicks that night. It was fine. Yeah. Yeah. So I went to Manta Ray that night, which was just movie, like art house cliches. Well directed, but nothing really to it. There's, see, there's, there's just too many stories overflowing of the many stories we watched and the stories we wove in between the stories we But maybe watched. the real stories were the friends we, we made, made along, along the way. way. I would say definitely. Definitely. That was the real story. It was, and I'm always glad Aww. it is. Oh, yeah. Um, this is festi- been- Look at the positive non-nihilism <laughs> we're yeah, I know. The festival right itself now. is like one big movie, right? Like you, you pr- program your brain just to be taking in cinema information through screens, and you have brief interludes in between, and they make up the connective tissue of this meta movie about you traveling to oh many different movie theaters. Yeah, uh, uh, we will be from, back for the 67th yeah. annual Satan Tango a good movie on, ju- yeah. on, ju- on June 3rd to 14th, 2020. Dates already out. Yeah. But we have Miff before that. I, so you know, I said days. I wouldn't do Miff, but man, I'm just tempted again. I'm, doing, I'm going after, uh, not the first weekend, but after that. I yeah. might have to time it in with when you're going. Yeah, I'm down for that. Well, I've... I'll see because uh, Indian Film Festival is on that at the same time and they're bringing yes. SRK, Shah Rukh Khan, wow. is the biggest superstar in the world, is coming to Melbourne. And... Uh, how, how, seriously, like, Biff's going to lose a fair chunk of audience who's going to want to see this guy. Actually, yeah. that's, that is true. It's very strange timing, actually. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I am, I've been propositioned and blackmailed incessantly by a lot of people who've just said, you know, where are, when are you going? Just take me, take me with you. I'm your best friend. And if no, I would like to say publicly right now, even I haven't got an invite yet. Okay. If I ever do, if, you know if, what's if, happening. We're totally they're getting a film fight club um, Airbnb. If, oh. that's, if that's happening. I, I'd be up for that. I'd, I'd be down. Actually, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah split the cost. We should yeah. totally do that, actually. Oh, oh yeah. Like, we, 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 <laughs> yeah. Dory, listen, we will take our Airbnb plans more concretely you know, off the air, but yeah. um, like, we, we, this is... Setting this the agenda. Yeah, like somewhere right between the comedy theatre and the hub. Because they don't have acne this year. 
They don't evacuate. Where are those screenings going to go? More the cap, chemo, capital, capital more region, palace, region, more region, Hoyts, maybe more, more Hoyts, which is region is getting a lot more. Yeah, it doesn't have the doesn't have the atmosphere that Acme does. No, Acme is perfect for it because you got the comedy, you got the two screens forum, right across the road from the Forum, forum Theater, yeah. and that's that's your State Theater and your Event George Street. Yeah, it's basically it's going to be Hoyts. Seems that way. Yeah, that's frustrating. But still, yeah. getting from Melbourne Central to like the Forum is it's not still that way hard. easier than getting from. Oh, you know, God, yeah. what was the furthest you had to go this festival? I had to go between. Tale of Three Sisters ending at the Orpheum at 20 past one to a 1.45 session at State Theatre of Synonyms. And you know what? I got it without a taxi and made it on time. Um, I had a session. How did you? What? I would just bolted out when the credits started and got their first bus and it was fine. Oh, um, there was a bus. Yeah. yeah. My, my session of Sybil ended at 4.45 at Denny Opera Keys and we had it be at Denny Newtown for Monos at six, which was fine for the train. It was just vivid crowds on enough. a Saturday night. Yeah. So we made it and got a burrito on the way and it worked. Cool, yeah. Yeah. That was We had a fifteen minute turnaround to get between or twenty minutes to get between vivid crowds at Dendy Upper Keys after on dog to get to Parasite on Saturday night. Oh actually I'm just glad you know what? I'm just glad the Dead Don't Die finished on time because it meant I could get to Unknown Saint as it started. That was mm. my closest closest call. Like I walked in as a that's wrong, but I try to avoid the ridiculous rushes this year in films that overlap because I just knew they'd be short. Yeah, spying. there always are. I managed uh, only to fall asleep in two films <laughs> and not to be late for one. Did okay. Yeah, that, 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 that's that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. There was yeah. It, it's it's okay if the sort of marathon you do fall asleep during. You know, yep. your, your, your rest film. Yeah, you're not going to yeah. fall over if you fall asleep in this marathon. So. Yeah, <laughs> it's okay, guys. No judgment. It's yeah. Okay. So, yeah, this has been Glenn Falkenstein, Chris Evans of Rotney Rook. Uh, tune in next week for the first of our 48th annual non-Sydney Film Festival uh, episodes. You put it that way and it just gets sadder. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Wow. We're not nihilistic. It's fine. No, Love the, you. The, 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 the fact is we will be covering um, Sydney Film Festival stuff for quite some time. Cause, I mean, we'll be unpacking it for a while. Yeah, actually, you know what? Is it Never Look Away in cinemas tomorrow? Yeah, it is. We never really dis- we, we never really talked about it. But we could. Oh, we could. Um, in future episode. We, we, yeah, we, we, we did in the previous week. Um, it's long, but it's good and worthwhile, mostly. Like our episode, hopefully. <laughs> yes. It's not yeah. as long. It's, it's longer than an episode. Yeah. <laughs> much, much longer. It's long as But it, prob- it prob- possibly goes, past, goes by quicker. But it's all right. Maybe a word episode is definitely more worthwhile than the movie, right? Ooh, well, mm. we're going to have to put that it's, to the... To the crowd because we get you to never listen away never never look away yeah never uh tune away never, tune away because never, never tune away because we will be back yeah next uh next wednesday next wednesday with more technically more sydney film festival coverage because of yesterday yeah. and uh parasite and films that will be in cinemas as well have a wonderful night or whenever you're listening enjoy movies be prepared to cry yeah and good night love life